Hello everyone, and welcome to Paranormalize, where our goal is to normalize the concept that life goes on after death. This is our weekly podcast facilitated by local tour agency Haunted Cincinnati, where we share personal experiences, explain the science behind ghost hunting, and attempt to answer questions about the unknown. I'm your co-host Alex. I'm Alicia. And I'm Drew. And welcome to Paranormalize. So, say that someone you know is interested in or is just starting to practice ghost hunting, what advice would you give them? Alright, so first things first, if you want to do some ghost hunting, you need to be granted access to some place that is haunted. A lot of people's first idea is abandoned buildings, and let me explain to you why that is an absolutely terrible idea. Firstly, abandoned does not equal haunted in any way, shape, or form. Abandoned simply equals creepy. Secondly, abandoned buildings are just buildings that no one is currently occupying legally. Someone still owns that land, and if you are on it without express permission, you are trespassing. Not to mention the fact that abandoned buildings are the ideal living space for the homeless. Yeah, and I know that cemeteries are another popular beginner's choice, but cemeteries close at dusk, and it is 100% illegal to be there past close. And if money is not an object, you can pay to privately rent out larger and more infamous locations. Some locations also advertise public ghost hunts you may join, but it is immensely more difficult to debunk these scenarios with strangers running amok. Some public investigations sell up to 100 tickets, so you can never count on being alone with your group. Yes, you should absolutely always be aware of how many tickets they are selling before purchasing. I once went to Mansfield Prison in Mansfield, Ohio on a public investigation, and it turned me off of public investigations for the rest of time. There must have been about 200 people going wherever they wanted with no noise restrictions or anything. It was so difficult to do any sort of investigating whatsoever. I would have been livid if that were me. Same, honestly. That just sounds like a cash scam at that point. (laughs) Not gonna lie, it was rough, but we did end up finding some evidence that made the trip at least worth it. I'm glad it was worth the time, but I think that the best advice for those who are seeking out someplace haunted to begin investigating is to start local. Find a friend that believes that their house is haunted or speak with any local businesses that are rumored to be haunted and just talk to them. Once they see that you are serious about your pursuit of paranormal evidence, they will be far more willing to allow you to investigate. I 100% agree with that, but once you've picked your location, there is still a lot of preparation to do. Yes, like finding someone to go with you. Never, and I cannot stress this enough, never go alone. Absolutely, never go alone. For starters, most people go ghost hunting when it's dark. And in case you didn't know, we as humans cannot see very well in the dark. And it could be very easy to trip and hurt yourself. Quick side note to add on there, Alicia. Ghost hunting does not need to be done at night. Professionals do it because it is quieter at night and they're less likely to experience activity that is not paranormal. Amateurs just tend to do it because it's spookier at night and that's what they see on all the ghost shows. There's actually no evidence suggesting paranormal activity is more prevalent during the day or night. With that out of our way, please continue, Alicia. Yes, Drew is absolutely correct. Your safety should not be placed as a lower priority when it comes to investigations. Anywho, with another person by your side, you are not only more likely to catch evidence that could otherwise have gone unnoticed, but it is also easier to debunk false evidence that to one person would be extremely difficult to duplicate. So, you have your location, and now you have your group. What's next? 
Equipment. That's absolutely right. There is an ever-growing list of a hunt ghost hunting equipment, so let's split this up into two categories, essential and optional equipment. So what equipment is essential for ghost hunting? The first thing you need is a flashlight. And if you can help it, you should get a red light flashlight. A red light flashlight helps retain your capability to see in the dark, so when you turn it off, your eyes will still be adjusted. It also prevents you from blinding your friends on accident. You also need a camera and an audio recording device. The camera is meant to pick up visual evidence like apparitions and shadow figures. The auto recording device is important as you can get a lot of evidence from it. There are several different types of recording devices, so it's up to you which one you're most comfortable with. You see ghost hunters use fancy EVP recorders on TV shows, but you can use something as simple as your cell phone and still get evidence. Believe it or not, we've managed to get the most evidence on a BlackBerry phone. It is truly and genuinely baffling why a BlackBerry is capable of picking up audio that no other recording device that we have can, but it's absolutely true. There is evidently some amount of complicated scientific mumbo-jumbo explanation behind it, but you would have to ask our boss Dan if you want to know anything more about that. But I think that covers the essentials for the most basic level of ghost hunting pretty well. Alicia, what about some optional pieces? So, like Drew and Alex said, there are new versions of investigative equipment coming out each year. However, with all of these new devices, there are still some older tools that are very dependable. The first is the K2 meter. Almost every investigator you meet will have a K2 that they carry with them. These meters will measure any fluctuations in the electromagnetic field, uh, which it is said that entities can actually manipulate. Uh, the meter will alert you to the possible presence of an entity in different ways depending on the brand, but most of them will have lights that go up on a color scale. Uh, video cameras are another non-essential but incredibly helpful tool. The great thing about video cameras is that they are entirely self-sufficient. You can leave them at one end of a hallway and then just go about your hunt not worrying about it until afterwards when you're reviewing the footage, so it's kind of great. Uh, then you get into the categories of the more advanced equipment, like the spirit box, laser grids, motion sensors, and most recently, the Kinect from an Xbox 360, which all range on the more expensive and professional side of ghost hunting. I have to say, the absolute most important thing you can bring is extra batteries and chargers. Keeping your equipment on for several hours leads to dead batteries, and frequently investigators find that their batteries die during hunts, even if they're barely used, and it's because it's thought that ghosts feed off the energy created by batteries and drain them. That is an excellent point. So, okay, you're now ready to finally ghost hunt, but how exactly do you ghost hunt? Well, you first get to your location, and you need to set up a base camp. This is usually in a room that is considered the least active or in a central location. You need a game plan after that. Are you planning on splitting up or staying together? If you're splitting up, how much room is there so that you can stay out of each other's way? Do you have a way to contact one another if you're splitting up? You absolutely need a way, whether it's radios or simple texts. How long are you going to be out? You need to take breaks, partially so you can look at evidence you may have captured, but partially to give you and the ghosts a moment of reprieve. After base camp is established and groups are determined, head to the first location you want to investigate. I always warn people that ghost hunting is a lot like watching paint dry. It is not at all how it is depicted in the shows with stuff happening consistently. Often shows are recorded over the span of several days and edited in post to make it appear to be over the span of just a few hours. The best plan of attack is to keep the lights off, let your eyes adjust, and turn on an audio recorder and start asking questions. Keep your eyes out for anomalies and take pictures consistently. When recording, space out your questions to give spirits a chance to respond. 
I would replay audio in real time right after recording it just to see if you get any intelligent responses to see if there's anything in the area worth communicating with. I would say when there is no activity happening to stay in areas for at least 30 minutes to an hour before moving on to another area. Most importantly, do not whisper. We've all done it. We'll all do it again because it's just so tempting. But please, if you have any amount of love for whoever is going to be listening to your audio evidence, just just don't do it. You will want to whisper because you want to listen for other noises around you, but whispering makes it so, so much more difficult to discern your voice from a possible paranormal response. Just, just don't do it, guys. You'll thank us later. Moving on. Right. So any paranormal investigator worth their snuff will attempt to debunk before making claims that they have encountered something paranormal. Background noises can easily be caused by other investigators, animals, and the building settling. When recording, you should make an audible note of non-paranormal sounds, such as if one of the other investigators shuffled or spoke, or if a car drove by, so that during playback later, you know that sound was created by you. So I think that pretty well covers the basics that you need to start ghost hunting. Of course, there is a lot more in-depth things um, to all of this, but... If you're just in the infancy of ghost hunting, I feel as though this episode has laid out the groundwork for you to be able to start, and we will go more depth in later on. All right, with all of that covered, it is time to introduce our segment, Blue Moon Tales. Essentially, we spin this lovely bottle, and whoever fate decides for it to land on must then tell us a spooky story, personal or not. These tales are once in a blue moon, so be sure to listen well. Alex, that's you. Uh, I was really hoping it wouldn't land on me. Um, How about you tell us about good old Robert? Oh, Robert, that is a good story. Uh, if you guys have ever listened to the Lore podcast, you've probably heard about Robert the Doll, so I'm not going to give the full intensive story that he does. But the basics of the story start in the early 1900s there was a boy named eugene robert and uh he was given a doll there's kind of conflicting information on whether his dad gave it to him after a business trip or whether the servant gave it to him depends on where you're reading it but he was given this doll and it was dressed in a sailor's outfit and it was just kind of a cute little doll and he decided to name it robert after his middle name And he kind of became consumed by this doll a little bit. He just carried it with him everywhere. He was apparently a pretty lonely boy, so it's probably just he considered Robert to be his only friend. There was one night where his mom heard him yelling, and she walked into the room, and he was huddled up on the bed, and he was like, Robert is doing bad stuff, and there was things thrown all over his room and and stuff like that, and she was like, Eugene, oh my gosh, you can't be causing a mess in your room. And he's like, I didn't do it. Robert did it. And obviously no one's going to believe that a doll is doing stuff like that. So he would end up blaming Robert for different things that would happen, like vases getting knocked over, things like that. And his mom would be like, Eugene, you need to stop doing stuff like this. And he would always insist, no, Robert did it. It wasn't me. Um, There was one day where allegedly... Robert was walking through the house carrying a knife. He can apparently change his facial expressions 
and he can talk. Now, it seems to be children they hear him talk, um, but adults have heard him laughing or they heard kind of, they've, they've heard him making noises, but it's usually not when they're in the same room. Uh, he eventually was locked in the attic because they were kind of really scared of him. And uh, so he was, he was locked up there and he would kind of randomly appear on the top floor, not in the attic. And so kids are talking about like, oh my God, Robert is taunting us on our way to school or Robert keeps waving at us from the window. And this is when Eugene was an adult. And so Eugene was like, what are you talking about? So Eugene went up there to check the attic and Robert was not up there. And so he was very confused. So he went to the window that the kids kept talking about. And Robert was sitting in a chair in front of that window. Eugene was very concerned about it because his wife did not like this doll. She obviously would not be the one to move it. He continuously would put Robert back in the attic. And then a few days, a week later, he would end up in that chair again. Uh, Eventually, Eugene managed to get him up in the attic where he stayed and he died sometime after that and a new family moved in and this young girl uh was up in the attic helping her parents move things around and she found robert the doll and was immediately enamored by him she loved this doll and it wasn't until um this one night where her mom heard her screaming and Same as the Eugene story earlier, she went in there, the room was a mess, and the girl was going on about how Robert said he was going to kill her and other things like that. So Robert is actually now housed in a uh, paranormal investigator museum type thing. Um, He's in a glass box and he's not allowed out. That They say that's the only way they can contain him. If you try to take pictures of Robert, inexplicably your camera will not work that picture will not come out and usually your camera will stop working in that building in general and as soon as you exit it'll start working again so robert is some paranormal force um they say when it comes to the version of the story where the servant gave it to him it was because she was like a uh, voodoo witch from barbados and she was trying to curse the family because she hated the family but Um, uh, that's up to opinion, I guess. It depends on which version of the story you're getting. But it's a pretty creepy story. I want to go visit Robert the Doll. He's in Key West, Florida. Uh, I'm not going to take a picture of him so he doesn't destroy my phone. But he just is kind of an interesting piece of paranormal stuff that exists. See, I hate dolls. Doll hauntings and doll stories are the ones that creep me out the most. And there's actually, like scientific research into why that is and it is called the uncanny valley and what the uncanny valley consists of is objects that are humanoid that are not human that therefore give us as human beings the heebie-jeebies uh clowns dolls mannequins things of that nature are all part of the uncanny valley so anything like it is very creepy in general but when you add ghosts and spirits into the mix they get even more terrifying and that's why I reminded you to tell us about Robert the Doll, because I will always remember you telling me about that. Thank you very much. You know, I have a haunted stuffed animal. Yes, I know you have a haunted <laughs> stuffed animal, but we will get to that later. I'll talk about Violet some other time. 
Okay, well, I think that's all the time that we have for today. So tune in next time on Paranormalized, where we will be discussing the more advanced ghost hunting equipment in depth, including where to get them, how to set them up, and the success that we have had with them so far. Stay haunted, Cincinnati.